This week's podcast proudly brought to you by Kent Cartridge. See, I made the mistake of buying the cheapest shot shells I could find when I first started duck hunting, and I would literally I'd watch feathers fly off of birds as they gave me a middle finger and flew off unscathed. That's when I switched over to Kent, and I was bartending and waiting tables at the time in college, and money was tight, but Kent offered me a great product at a fair price, and I've never looked back. Of course, now we have uh, Fast Deal 2.0. They just released Fast Deal Plus for this upcoming season, and with Dove season on the horizon, we've got Steel Dove, and then Teal Steel for early teal season. Whatever your shotgunning needs are for this fall, Kent has you covered. You can find all of their products at Kent Cartridge. Com. This week's show brought to you by Ducks Unlimited, an organization that I've been plugged into for, gosh, over 15 years now. From the Alaskan wilderness to the Atlantic Flyway, across America's Great Plains, and down the Mississippi Delta, Ducks Unlimited has been leading the way in wetlands conservation since 1937. The DU family has ensured the protection of over 16 million acres of waterfowl habitat. Think about that. So, come join us. You too can carry on DU's conservation legacy. Visit ducks.org to find your local event and join our volunteer team, Ducks Unlimited, the world's leader in wetlands conservation. Run the river, catch a small mail, shoot a mallard as he flies south. Run my dog till I get that trophy for Southern Outdoors. Good morning, good morning, good morning, Cable Smith. Welcome everybody into episode 699 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg. Thank you so much for being here today. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be here talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you. As we close in on episode 700, not that that really means much other than, gosh, I'm getting old. Uh, the mirror, well, the mirror doesn't lie. There's more gray in my beard and less hair on my head. <laughs> But I still feel young at heart. Uh, I still have the passion to do this. Not going anywhere anytime soon. Anyway, I was thinking, you know, maybe I'll book a big name guest to to celebrate that little milestone. I think we did that on episode 500. Um, but I think I would have more fun if I had someone in the studio that's very close to me and get her take on what the last 15 or so years have been like. A little walk down memory lane. And she always hates it when I stick the microphone in her face, which makes it even that much better. Uh, so who knows? But I think we might do that, among other things, next week. Anyway, what are we doing today? Let me tell you. You know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that black rifle coffee out of Granddaddy's beat-up old Stanley Thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And joining us for the duration of the presentation is Ducks Unlimited's senior waterfowl scientist, Mike Brazier, making his return. Uh, Mike is well-versed on everything having to do with waterfowl and with duck season closing in quickly. Oh, and let me tell you this. I went out to the uh, the deer lease last week. We've got some stock tanks on the place. Oh, boy. Man, was I pumped. I saw a couple hundred birds. A uh, let's see, it was mostly pintails, widgeon, a few gadwalls, green wing teal, and a bunch of ringnecks, unfortunately. But we'll shoot those two. We don't discriminate. JoJo doesn't care, <laughs> and neither do I. Uh, but some beautiful sprigs, 
Uh, so an early migration pattern, but uh, yeah, that was out in, in Knox County. Um, but encouraging to see. And we've had so much rain on the heels of drought that, you know, the tanks are full and they're overflowing to places where grass is growing, which is providing just all kinds of food for dabbling ducks. Uh, so super encouraging to see. And anyway, we're going to talk duck numbers with Mike. Um, the annual waterfowl survey that comes out at the end of August every year was quite concerning. Even the hardiest of species, mallards, their numbers were down over 20% across the board. Uh, so that you know that raises some eyebrows. Not all doom and gloom for some of the less common species. Canvasbacks doing well. Pintails, which have been much maligned in my lifetime for sure, um, they actually showed a little bit of improvement. And then uh, what about sea ducks? Does DU do any work with sea ducks? And what is my, and I don't think Mike specializes uh, in sea ducks, but I, I am going up to the Chesapeake Bay area for my first sea duck hunt in December. And I uh, wanted to pick Mike's brain on what is known about these birds. I imagine they're much harder to study for sure. Um, but yeah, we'll get into that. And, and then uh, Mike does have something he wants to share regarding how you and I can get involved with a waterfowl research project this year, which I believe involves sending in, well, it's, I don't know if it's the wing or what body part, but um, the organization that's doing the research will send you all that stuff. All you have to do is take that, whatever body part it is of the duck and send it in. It's free. Um, everything, shipping, it's all done for you. Uh, but it's always cool to to be involved and have a hands-on impact in conservation and uh, wildlife projects and research. So cool opportunity there. Uh, I'm certainly going to participate in it, uh, but Mike will fill us in on what DU's got going on on that front. So that's what we're doing today. It's going to be ducks, ducks, ducks. And you know, that's how I fell in love with hunting was waterfowling and uh, you know, having the four legged there with you, and the camaraderie and the duck blind, it's, there's nothing like it. Uh, so excited about today's show. Um, let's do a quick giveaway. And <laughs> Last week, I had a lot of you guys email in. It was like, you didn't give us the keyword to email in. So I apologize for that. I apparently told you what the prize was and then didn't tell you how to win it. Uh, nevertheless, many of you emailed in anyway and just made up your own keyword, well, Orwell or make Orwell fiction again. So uh, Garrett Lindsay of Kingwood, Texas, congrats on winning last week's drawing. We're going to run it back this week for uh, one of the make Orwell fiction again hoodies. Again, it has the Lone Star Outdoors show logo on the back. You can find it. Uh, if you want to just buy one, you can go to the link on the website, the viral style link there, or shoot me an email and I'll send it to you. But yes, just email the word Orwell. There's your keyword, Orwell, to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. And if you haven't read 1984, do yourself a favor because we are living in crazy times. How George Orwell could predict the future in the 1940s, it's beyond me. Uh, but we are living in Orwellian times. There is no doubt about that. Um, okay. 
Let's knock out a break. Coming up next, it's All Things Waterfowl with DU's senior waterfowl scientist, Mike Brazier, right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Whoa, let's get started. Who knows when we'll be parted? No time to be downhearted on this night. Let's play some good old music. My heart sure could use it. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use eForms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Howdy folks, this is Ann Watson, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show with my buddy Cable Smith. She keeps it all together, I always come around. She's cool, calm, and collected, I want to paint the town. She's like a Sunday morning, I'm a dance all Saturday night. Hello, Aaron Watson, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg. Cable Smith here with you as always. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Uh, we are all set to talk some waterfowl with DU's Mike Brazier. First, though, this segment is brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. Here's the cool thing that we are doing right now through, I believe, I think we'll run it through like the middle of December before we have to pick a winner. But if you are up for joining SCI, Cool thing is, you're going to be entered into an all-inclusive, that's lodging, food, the whole nine yards, uh, two-day duck hunt at the famed Pipkin Ranch on the Texas coast. Uh, I will be there as well, and uh, you and a buddy, you and your wife, your girlfriend, whatever, uh, you'll be joining me on that hunt, all-inclusive, you know, the whole shebang. Uh, And... It's only $65 to join SCI Plus when you use my promo code, and that's how we'll know that you're entered into the drawing for the hunt. Uh, it's just Lone Star 20. That saves you 20%. So, yeah, it's a no-brainer. It's a slam dunk. You want to be a member of SCI anyway, and here's your chance to join me on an incredible waterfowling experience on the Texas coast. So use that promo code, Lone Star 20. If you are already a member, you can extend or renew your membership with that promo code, and you will also be entered. So that's how we're tracking it. Uh, just Lone Star 20, and boom, your hat is thrown into the ring for uh, a chance to well, probably be the highlight of waterfowl season for many of us. Uh, and I look forward to trading more stories and talking hunting and conservation with whoever wins around a campfire at the Pipkin Ranch. So take advantage of that by joining SCI. Okay, well, let's talk some ducks with DU's senior waterfowl scientist, Mike Brazier. It's great to have you back on. Hey, it's good to see you, Cable. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for giving me the opportunity to get back on. Absolutely. Absolutely. How are things in Memphis? They're doing well. Uh, on this particular day, we, well, yesterday we had a power outage, and it lasted, <laughs> lasted overnight. Thankfully, thankfully everybody got, uh, got things back up here at headquarters uh, late this morning. So we're back uh, Back in the running. Right on. Well, um, typically we do something late August when the uh, the duck count numbers come out, but then 
I went elk hunting and life got in the way and you know how it goes. So we figured yeah. we'd, we'd knock that out today, but then also talk about sea ducks. And I don't know how much do you oh. is invested in sea ducks. It seems like they're probably a lot harder to estimate as far as populations go. They are. Know. Yep. I don't know. Yep, for sure. I don't know anything about them, but I'm going to hunt them in December. So I figured, well, let's find out what DU knows about sea ducks. So, uh, but let's start with the uh, the puddlers and divers that every waterfowler depends on to make up the majority of their strap each fall. Yep. And um, there's some there's some positive things. I'm looking. I have the the uh, waterfowl survey up right now. Yep. Not you know it's not great considering the the normal puddle ducks. But I want to start with two species that it seems like for as long as I can remember, these two have been taking it in the shorts population-wise year after year. Um, but they're up this year, and that is uh, canvas back up 6% and 5% over their long-term average. And then this is still sad, but it's encouraging at the same time. Northern pintail up 24%, still 43% below the long-term average. But when you see a 24% increase over a one-year period, uh, that's encouraging. So what's going on with those two as we get things going here? Sure. We'll start with canvas backs. They're, they're obviously a diving duck. They breed in the prairie pothole region. Their population size has I don't know if it has ever, the breeding population size, I'm not sure if it's ever gotten over a million. I, I didn't go back and look at sort of the historical record, but it's, it's if it did, it's not going to be by much. It's a species that that population size is pretty low. They, relative to some of the others there, the habitats that they, de they depend on are pretty stable. And, you know, as a result, there's not as much fluctuation around that that population estimate from year to year. I mean, that's a good thing, but I mm -hmm. it also it means that there's not a lot of opportunity for, let's say, a great expansion in capacity from one year to the next. You know, so that's yeah, why we don't it's like sixty, let's just round it up to six hundred and twenty thousand right. individuals estimated from the from the latest uh duck count. Yeah. That's not a that's not a lot of ducks. So like you're saying though, uh, habitats like the limiting factor, they're probably never going to get over much over a million. Yeah, that's right. They that's 620,000 in the breeding population in the spring, you know, so it doesn't count for the ducks that they produce during the summer. Mm -hmm. They rely on these permanent, semi permanent wetlands. They're overwater nesting ducks in contrast to a lot of the dabbling ducks, which are ground nesters. Uh, so their nesting habitat is so closely tied to the availability of those permanent and semi permanent wetlands, and more so those kind of wetlands that have this vegetation around the perimeter. Because when I say overwater nester, the hens will actually take cattail or bull rush or whatever the vegetation is and kind of bend it over and create a mound and then uh, nest right on top of that over water. Mm -hmm. So th they have some unique challenges in that regard, but basically it means that they're closely, closely tied to the uh, presence of those types of wetlands. Um, there, you know, when you look at a population change of 6% from one year to the next for, for a, a number down around 620,000. The, I, I don't have the confidence interval here in front of me, but, m but my guess is if you looked at it statistically, that's not 
that's not necessarily that's not much different from what we saw right. last year so mm. you consider that pretty stable uh, but it's a species that we should nevertheless gonna be uh, be pretty happy about that we've not seen declines in that population that's remained stable uh, generally speaking and uh, you know it's it's a bird that that people love to hunt if they get the opportunity it's a fantastic uh, table fair and I mean they're just a, a glorious bird you know they're, they're called the king for a reason did you see the one I just I just moved my camera but I've got one right there uh, let me the... see here I actually have oh uh, I'm gonna have to give <laughs> this is sort of a work in progress here no, uh, yeah I do see it yeah I got it now yeah. so that was uh it, people will crucify me but I don't care about naming lakes so that was on Cooper Lake here in northeast Texas probably 10 years or so ago yeah and my buddy called me he'd been out there he was like hey you want to go shoot a canvas bag knowing that I had never shot a canvas bag but it was high on my list. And yeah. I was like, well, where? And he goes, yeah, we're, I found a bunch of them on Cooper. They're hanging out on this, uh, around this island. And I said, sure. So we took his boat out there. Him, myself, and my brother, we shot our three Drake canvas backs in like 30 minutes. Yeah. And we watched canvas backs come into the decoys for the next two hours. Never took a shot. There wasn't any other duck that ever came in. But it was, they put on a show and just decoying and, you know that was a that's a lot of work to shoot three ducks but that was the limit right and right and now i have this one on the wall and a memory of hey you know we we all shot one duck and it was still one of the most memorable hunts i've ever had yeah i've had a i've had a good hunt or two with canvas backs up in uh, prairie canada um and so when you have one of those it's it's quite memorable uh, they don't happen often but mm -hmm. it's it's something special yeah uh so let's see you want to talk about pintails yeah, because this one is, it seems like every time we talk pintails, it's surrounded in negativity. Yeah. And so to see a big jump, I mean, 6% with canvasbacks, not much, but 24% right. uh, is, that's a substantial increase. And, and we've talked about these these birds and how they, they lose nesting habitat and agricultural practices of changing across Canada and, um, you know, drought affects them substantially. Uh, so... Tell us why they uh, actually seemingly had a pretty dang good year. Yes, yeah, so they're up from last year. So I think part of this story is what happened last year. Mm -hmm. And if you recall, last year we were we had a real low number. I think it was the lowest number breeding population estimate for pintails on record since we've been record keeping. And uh, or since we've been doing the survey, we being the collective waterfowl management community. This is a Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Canadian Wildlife Service, state provincial partner survey. Fish and Wildlife Service leads it. Ducks Unlimited just summarizes and pulls the numbers from the report and helps communicate about them. That, that's sort of a common point of, of misunderstanding. DU is not involved in the in the survey. But so mm -hmm. whenever I'm, I'm guilty of saying we quite often because I, I, view that as the larger waterfowl management community so right. it's it's a yeah last year the estimate was the lowest on record and it was within i forget the 30 to eighty thousand uh, individuals i think it was around thirty thousand individuals from falling within that range where state and federal agencies would have to consider a closed season so we were real nervous kind of coming into this year uh, in terms of what we might see 
I will say last year there were some folks that thought the low number might have been partly attributed to some survey timing relative to spring phenology. And I think that's the other thing that people have to realize is that the waterfowl breeding population survey was designed around the ecology of the mallard. Uh, it, it's conducted across over a million square miles, I think is, is what it is. And it, it occurs over a period of four or five weeks. And you're mm -hmm. dealing with a number of diff different species. You're dealing with a number of different habitat types. There's imperfect detection associated with this. There's a whole, and these are highly mobile birds, uh, pintails especially. They're known to to settle in different landscapes from one year to the next, depending on habitat conditions. A lot of different species do that, but pintails are pretty notorious for being flexible in that and uh, where they go. So the reality is, cable that sometimes. Although we get estimates and there's statistically valid estimates and there's est confidence intervals around them, sometimes <clears throat> things happen with the survey or with the timing of the survey, the timing of spring, and uh, that that maybe maybe the numbers, maybe we're missing a few of the birds or so maybe they go to the, we know there are some portion of pintails from past science, uh, past research, it tells us in some years, there's a portion of the pintail population that goes into some areas that aren't as well surveyed. Hmm. And... You know, so that's sort of the backdrop here. The the last last year, um, some of what was going on in that number, uh, and that's it, it's just the reality. That's why um, that's why it's important to kind of keep some of this in context. So this year, now it what we're seeing with the pintail number up twenty four percent. I think part of it is going to be these birds settled in some landscapes where we have better more intensive survey coverage we were able to get a tighter estimate on them we were able to um, I, I, I do think however there probably was some production last year for these birds because the landscapes in which they nest some of that short grass prairie um, and you know southern Alberta southern Saskatchewan I think there were some areas last year that did benefit from some timely rainfall so there probably was a little production last year, but I think what you're seeing with a 24% increase, which is pretty eye-catching, partly attributable to actual production and an increase in population size, and also a maybe better survey alignment with where those birds were this year. So it's just mm. one of those things that we have to deal with and we have to be aware of. And uh, from a conservation perspective, Ducks Unlimited's perspective, that's why whenever we're looking at these survey data, the population estimates, we take a longer term view. We're not going to react or overreact based on population status in any in one single year, uh, but yeah. we look at that longer term trajectory. So that's that's kind of the way I'd summarize that. But it is regardless, exciting, happy to see that that increase pintails up above the 2.2 million mark in the breeding population. There's some pretty good indication from a few folks that I've talked with. They're seeing young pintails in the population again this fall. So there's been some production in some parts of that important landscape. Some parts are still dry, but uh, you know I, I think this is probably uh, about an average production year if I had to had to ballpark it for pintails. So um, okay, longer term, I can tell you, I don't think there's anyone any waterfowl biologist that expects us to see pintail populations get back to 5 million, 6 million, anything like that, the way they were decades ago. That landscape has just changed so fundamentally for this particular species. And, you know, we, we just have to get to a point, get that landscape to a point where it can sustain these populations without, you know, getting them down to alarmingly low levels. So okay. remains a remains a priority species for us. Okay. Well, yeah, a few things get me as excited as uh, bull sprigs that have committed to the decoys. 
Let's knock out a quick break. We'll come back and hone in on the most common of all puddle ducks, the king of dabblers. We're talking mallards next. That segment brought to you by the Mossberg 940 Pro Waterfowl. When I'm in the duck blind this fall, it will be with my trusty 940 Pro Waterfowl in hand. And uh, I've put that thing through the ringer the last two seasons. Have yet to clean it. It goes bang when I pull the trigger. It goes into the gun safe dirty. Actually, for duck season, it pretty much lives in a soft case with the mud still on it. I love it because it's reliable, it's affordable, and it is proudly American-made by America's oldest family-owned firearm manufacturer. You can find it at Mossberg.com. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. When we were raising cane and swapping songs. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, a full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Favorites there from Whiskey Myers bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Stone. When I'm Cable Smith, thanks for being here. Thanks to Mossberg, our presenting sponsor. And thanks to Big and J Whitetail Attractants for bringing us this segment. Here's a cool thing uh, I took some of that Hogs Hammer It. It's a liquid attractant. This was last week when I went to the Dewey's and I saw all those ducks. Uh, lots going on. It was filling feeders, fixing fences. You know the drill. Least least work days, and if I had if I had a buck on camera that I wanted to bow hunt, I'd have been sitting in a pop up, uh, but moved to blind and, and got things squared away for the kiddos for the upcoming rifle season, and uh, and I did a a test with the hogs hammer it by putting a little bit of corn on the ground and then pouring an entire bottle of hogs hammer it on that corn. I wanted to see how quickly the hogs would find it because it is an attractant that is scent based. We all know hogs are going to eat corn, but they have to find it first. So literally within, I think it was six hours later, there was probably a 250-pound boar right there going to town on the uh, hog's hammer. It. The next day, nice eight-point buck was there as well. So it doesn't deter deer. I uh, had four or five does come in, and then it was, I think, within 36 hours, had an entire sounder of pigs. And this was a site that had never been baited before. Just on the corner of a wheat field, it was like, Let's get an honest an honest review here. <laughs> well, the stuff worked. There's no doubt about it. So check it out. It's Hogs Hammer It from uh, our friends over at Big and J. And uh, you can pick it up at Tractor Supply, Walmart, or at BigandJ.com. Well, let's get back into the waterfowl discussion with our buddy Mike Brazier of Ducks Unlimited. Mike, we talked pintails. And just switching over to mallards here, I'm looking at their statistics from the waterfowl survey. And it is a little bit concerning. When you, when you look at their long-term average... So 2023, 6.1 million ducks counted. 
uh, estimated last year was 7.4 million. Hmm. So we're down 18% from last year, but then down 23% uh, when you talk about the long-term average. And everyone thinks of mallards as the, the hardiest, most adaptable of American duck species. Uh, why, you know, why the negative trend on their population? Yep, that's a, that's a good question. And Well, you I, have the answer, don't you? <laughs> I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers. <laughs> what, I can, what I can say is that um, part of, part of the, the, the issue, I guess, with, with a number of the declines that we've seen when you kind of piece them together, together over the past few years is the fact that it's been quite, a, quite some time since the entire prairie pothole region has been in excellent habitat condition. By excellent habitat condition, I mean lots of full wetlands, uh, lots of breeding, uh, breeding wetlands available to waterfowl, to ducks. Um, it's been a number of years since we've seen that from South Dakota all the way through Alberta. You look back through some of the drought maps over the past four, five, six years, uh, there's, there has been pretty much any, er, pretty much every year, um, a significant portion of that prairie landscape that has been dry. That was the case this year. That was the case last year. North Dakota, South Dakota last year got some beneficial rain to end the tremendous drought, prairie-wide drought that we had in, in 2021. There was virtually, there was very little production from that prairie landscape in 2021, and that's sort of borne out by what we saw in age ratio data um, a couple of years ago. Age ratio data from harvest, that's it. People, hunters will submit their wings and then biologists will estimate the age ratios in the harvest and that gives an in indication of production. I can tell you that last year, the in index of production for many of those dabbling ducks was about twice of what it was the previous year. So there was mm -hmm. some production last year, uh, but it's been, it's been so long since we've had that entire prairie landscape wet for multiple years that it's not unexpected, shouldn't be unexpected, that we see these populations begin to sort of regress back to the mean. We've had, it's fair to, to characterize that, that prairie landscape as being in no better than average condition the past number of years when you look at it as a whole. And so we should expect these populations to gravitate back towards some sort of mean status. Now, mallards this year, admittedly to your point, are, what do we say here? They're 23% below the long-term average. Mm -hmm. That's that's not average, that's below the average, right? It's one of the lowest, probably the lowest estimate in about 30 years, if I, if I remember that correctly, since prior to implementation yeah, of adaptive like harvest kind of management. That's right, it was, by that. it, we were surprised by that as well. And, you know, despite that, we're still at 6 million mallards. <laughs> mm -hmm. Despite that decline, we still have 6 million mallards in the breeding population in the traditional survey area. That doesn't count the eastern survey area, which can add about a million birds. And, uh, and, and we are down substantially from those record levels of the mid-20-teens. Um, but yeah, despite those declines, still 6 million mallards in the breeding population. And that, that's a testament to just the remarkable, I, I guess, adaptability of that bird. We don't like to see a population estimate 23% below the long-term average. But again, given what I described about the number of years that it's been since we had that wet prairie landscape all across it, 
uh, for multiple years, I don't think we should be too surprised at what we're seeing with the direction in some of these. So we're in a yeah. we're at a we're at a point right now where we've been coming back down to some average levels, and I expect us. As long as the prairie landscape is in this sort of average condition, I expect us to fluctuate around those average numbers. I would hope that we can that we see an increase in mallard numbers next year. Time will tell, but uh, that's that's kind of what's going on there. The other thing that I'll say, and part of this is going to be reflected in that mallard number. When you look close into the into the survey, the Alaska estimates, Alaska and the Yukon Territory estimates. Were collectively total duck estimates were down fifty percent from last year. That yeah. that's odd. I'll just say that's odd. And I think that and most folks that I've talked to think that's partly attributable to it being a very late spring in in that in parts of that landscape. And that might have again been one of those deals where the timing of spring Timing of the survey may not have been perfectly aligned. It led to some redistribution of birds, but it's hard to believe that that decline, that 50% decline in that um, in, in that survey area, is you know is exactly what's going on there. Because last year, by most accounts, habitat conditions, breeding conditions were good. So there's some noise, I guess, is the point in in some of these numbers. And that's, again, why it's it's valuable and critical that we look at these numbers over um, over multiple years and why we no, don't draw too many conclusions based on, on one year. Because, you know, we're sort of in the impossible situation of trying to explain why we you know, every up and down in these numbers mm -hmm. for these migratory birds across over a million square miles of, of survey area. What is the uh, second most common puddle duck in North America? Uh, blue winged teal, if I'm looking at this. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. blue winged teal. And that's. Which is weird because, you know, typically in Texas anyway, we don't, we don't shoot blue winged teal during the regular duck season. That's right. why we have the special two week season. Three weekends, uh, early teal, and, you know, 99% of those birds are blue wingers yeah. that are headed towards Mexico or South America even. Yep. And so I, I guess you just, because you because they're out of out of sight, out of mind, I guess during the regular duck season, I don't think people realize how many That's right. we have. That's right. If you go to the prairie pothole region, though, during the breeding season, you will realize that they are a very abundant bird. Uh -huh. uh, that much is for sure. Yeah. Uh, Widgeon, they always seem to be on the downward trend. They're down 14%, 28% from the long-term average. That's um, Cable, that's another species that if you look at that Alaska survey, their number was down substantially. I want to say, I didn't bring my binder in here with me where I have that report. I just, I, I just forgot it in my office. I want to mm -hmm. say the number in Alaska might have been down 600,000, 800,000, something like that. Now, some of those birds were going to be captured into some, in some, uh, by way of redistribution, other areas that are surveyed. But, you know, it's that, that number, maybe it wasn't 800,000, maybe it's more like 400,000, 800,000 might have been the total. But either but, way, uh, when you're talking yeah. about a population of 1.9 million, that's yeah. a lot of, a lot it, of uh, it is. And it makes you again, think well, how much of this is noise in that in the in the survey uh for this year so i'm going to be real eager to see what the number is next year mm. and for for a number of these species and i'll be looking particularly at that uh at that alaska yukon territory survey region uh hopefully uh, hopefully the timing works out you know ideally you know it's just so 
that's another one of those species that I would I would say I'm not too concerned about it right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, other than it has been another one that's or longer term decline, um, and I mean that I, I don't know anyone that hates a widgeon. Everybody loves oh, widgeon. So if birds. if widgeon if widgeon ended up if there was a way for widgeon to become the most popu- populous duck in North America, I think we'd have a lot of happy people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gadwall still doing well, up 25% long-term average. green teal, 15% above, and actually had a great uh, count, up 16%. Um, blue-winged teal, 2%. Like we said, there's still a ton of them. Mm-hmm. Shovelers doing well. Yep. And uh, redheads up 27% over their long-term average. A little dip last year, but... Uh, and then you see another one, kind of like the widgeon. The scop always seems to be trending down, uh, and I, I don't know if it's the nesting habitat in the boreal forest or what's going on with them. Uh, but only dropped four percent this past year, which I, that's really pretty insignificant. Uh, but still twenty nine percent down from their long term average. But right. I didn't realize there were so many. You're talking about three and a half million birds. Oh yeah, yeah. Scop at one time were the most abundant well they they still are they are the most abundant diving duck they exceed their population size exceeds that for many diving uh, dabbling duck species they are a species uh for which we've we've there's a lot of con- had been and still is a lot of conservation concern they were one uh, that was on sort of a long-term decline there was a lot of research invested in trying to understand the factors responsible for that decline they nest <clears throat> nest in the boreal forest uh, in some of those uh, subarctic areas into alaska they um, there were a number of hypotheses put forward everything from environmental um, contaminants to changes in the ecology of a lot of the ponds and wetlands semi-permanent wetlands in the midwestern u.s that they that they rely on during that spring migration period and i i don't know that we we've nailed exactly what's behind that decline um the good news is over the past few years we've seen some relative stability in that population and uh, it's again not exactly sure what's going on there it's going to be a combination of of changing wetland conditions there was sort of systemic changes in in wetland conditions uh, <clears throat> i think there's some some pretty good evidence that food resources in some of those mid- midwestern le- midwestern lakes have changed uh, maybe not as productive as they used to be, and there's some indication that that can have a pretty profound effect on body condition of of scop as they travel back north. How that translates into changes in their productivity is still uh, difficult to study, but it's uh, I think the fact that we've seen it stabilize here over the past few years is a is a welcome observation. Uh, that's kind of where we are with that with that species. But yeah, three and a half million in the breeding population and. It's a, and a, the most abundant diving duck we have. Well, if uh, you hunt with me, then you would think the ringneck was the most abundant uh, diving duck that we have. Well, it may be rivaling <laughs> that here at some point. Ringnecks have been doing particularly well yeah. there. And but we don't have them as part of the regular count. They're on the eastern survey area. That's right. And I think. I mean, I'm in the central flyway, and we see a lot of ringnecks every yeah. year. Yeah. Uh, this says 660,000. I'm sure there's many more than that. Uh, if this is just that, you know, just the eastern uh, seaboard, essentially. So. It's that eastern survey area, and yes, the uh, there there are 
they're probably man i don't i don't want to throw out a wrong number but there there's going to be you know probably over a million or maybe even over two. I, I don't there are estimates for ringnecks from that traditional survey area they don't report them in that survey i think just because they're little um they they occur in lower density just say it ringnecks are trash ducks and nobody cares about them I will never say that, man. Hey, you give me a, you give me a ring neck that's real fat and got a lot of that white yeah. fat on it, man. I will not turn that. I duck wouldn't down say that either all. out loud. I that's, didn't just uh, say that. No, because no, I, you know they've saved so many hunts for me, and yeah, a lot of the times I'm like, well, the dog needs needs work, and we've got ring necks, so yeah. here we go. And you know they might not be the easiest to make edible, but when you slow cook a duck, they all they all I, tend to taste but, very similar. But no kidding, Cable, one of the best tasting ducks I've ever had was a ringneck that we, I, I'm pretty sure it came from Delta Marsh, uh, feeding on sago, sago pondweed. You know, mm -hmm. so much of, of how a duck tastes is tied to what it eats. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's obvious, right? But you see that also within within a species you shovelers are a great example if you if you harvest a shoveler out of a rice field and all it's been eating is rice seed and maybe a few other bugs and it's got that nice white fat beneath the skin that's going to be a tasty bird mm -hmm. in contrast if you shoot a shoveler off of some other kind of semi-permanent wetland or you know uh sewage lagoon if somebody's brave enough I've to do shot that, them off of that you know sure. and then you open that bird up and it's got that reddish orange fat that's going to be an indication that it's been eating some of those aquatic and more of those aquatic invertebrates and you're going to get a stronger taste it's it is it is amazing i mean yes it's amazing it's it's not it's not surprising that what a duck eats is going to determine how it tastes in large mm -hmm. part and ringnecks are no exception. Um, I, I promise you, one of the best tasting ducks I've ever had has been a, a ringneck that had that not thick layer of nice white fat on it. Been eating a lot of uh, submerged aquatics, and man, it, it maybe it's a little bit more of a crapshoot than let's say a wood duck. That's one of the things I like about wood ducks is they are so consistent. Uh, I mean, my experience in how they taste, even well, more so. Taste good. I, so, I know. I mean, even yeah. more so, more consistent than mallards because mallards have such a diverse diet. You'll get some that have some of that orange fat. You'll get some that have that nice white fat. Um, I think that's why I like wood duck so much. I know what well, I'm getting. It's funny, you know, you talk about hundreds and hundreds of duck hunts in someone's life, and the ones that stand out aren't always the ones that you would think, oh, we shot five mallards and uh, had a, we each had a pintail kicker, you know? Right. No, one of my favorite hunts ever was a, uh, a two-man limit of Drake ringnecks on public water. It was me and my brother and my dog. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, all right, fine. We'll just pick out the Drakes. And we had one of the best duck hunts we've ever had. Yeah. Um, and that and they're pretty birds. I mean, black and white. But, yep. To commemorate that hunt. And yeah, no, they're beautiful. Yep. Uh, plumed out. And they decoy, sure. you know, they, they come back around, you drop one, they'll come back around. I mean, who doesn't like that, mm. you know? <laughs> <laughs> Training wheel ducks. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, we're going to knock out a quick break. We'll come back and get into something that I'm completely unfamiliar with. I don't think it's your, uh, your forte either, but uh, we're going to talk some sea ducks, see what we can figure out on that front. That segment brought to you by the Stealth Cam Deceptor. If you're in the market for a cellular camera, look no further. The Deceptor offers impeccable daytime images, but really shines under those nighttime conditions with uh, no-glow imaging. 
It's like HD photos at night. It's insane. You can pick one up at StealthCam.com. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Let me tell you about the Armorsite 640 contractor. It is the industry-leading thermal technology in a very user-friendly rifle scope. A 640 Armacore 12 Micro made in the USA Thermal Core. It's got a four-hour onboard recording, four-hour runtime on a full charge, USB and Wi-Fi streaming, uh, eight user-selectable reticles and six color palettes, and the most user-friendly interface out there because you're operating these things in the dark. So uh, that's very important. You can find the contractor, the 640, or its little brother, the 320, right there at armorsite.com. Looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW? Then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. Get some gravy and they wore blue bell bottom jeans and platform shoes. And they slapped at the insects while they laughed at the rednecks. They kept all the straight-laced businessmen confused. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Thanks for being here today. We're still visiting with uh, Ducks Unlimited's senior waterfowl biologist or scientist, Mike Brazier. Before we pick it back up with Mike, though, this segment brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee and Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. When you get that wall hanger worthy trophy this fall, you know who to call. Rustic Reminders, Josh and Becky Gunther. I've been taking care of all of my trophy mounts from a duck to a buck to a bass to a trout to an entire African safari. They do amazing work. They answer the phone when you call, and you can find them at gr8mounts.com. And with that being said, let's continue our waterfowl conversation with Mike Brazier. And Mike, shifting gears here, you know, I'm going on my first sea duck hunt this fall, uh, heading up to the New England area. I think flying into Boston, and we'll join my friends over at Kent Cartridge, and we're going to, uh, yeah, hunt ducks in the ocean. It's long been on the bucket list, but I've never done it. So I guess my first question would be, and I think there's one that comes to mind for me, uh, but are there species that I could expect to shoot in the salt water that I could just as likely uh, shoot here on a pond in North Texas? Uh, I think the answer to that is going to be yes. So I, I guess first, let's kind of define the sea ducks. And I will also go into this conversation saying I am not a sea duck ecologist. I am not a specialist uh-huh. on sea ducks. My my understanding, my familiarity, my studying of sea ducks is that's probably the weakest part of my uh, waterfowl ecology repertoire, so to speak. Um, well, yes, ducks but, element is about wetlands, so it's I mean historically right. So I, well, I understand no, absolutely. we we don't put as much focus on these species. Uh, but you know more about them than I do. Yeah. So, so when we say sea ducks, uh, I'm going to get technical here for a second. We're talking about the taxonomic tribe known as Mergani. Uh, obviously, that's a that's a derivative of merganser or merganser derivative of Mergani. That includes sea ducks such as mergansers, golden eyes, 
um, eiders. Um, what about buffleheads? Buffleheads, long-tailed ducks, harlequin ducks, um, even hooded merganser is technically sea ducks. Scoters. That's right. Yep. So uh, those are our, our sea ducks. Uh, I feel like I'm forgetting one. I probably am. But, so I learned uh, something already. I had no idea mergansers were, were sea a part duck. of yeah, because huh. right. we have a ton of hooded mergansers in Texas. Yeah, yep, hmm. and and so that's within this larger group of of sea ducks. So mm-hmm. uh, you get sea ducks, you, you know, buffalo heads. We get that's <laughs> that's yeah. right. Common golden eye, Barrow's golden eye, um, and and so forth. And now ruddy duck is technically not a sea duck. It is a known as a stiff tail duck. It's in a different tribe known as oxyurini. And so anyway, just a little bit of uh, a little extra information there in terms of man outside of the, you know, the buffalo head obviously is going to be the most likely sea duck that you would, or and hoodamorganser that you're going to encounter there in Texas. Mm-hmm. A lot of the others, eiders, scoters, yeah, you'll get them here, there on some lakes. Certainly if you're in the, in the, the great lakes, a lot of them will pass through there. Long tail ducks, I, um, uh, red breasted mergansers things of that nature, but, uh, but otherwise inland areas outside of, of buffalo heads down in your neck of the woods, it's, it's going to be uncommon to encounter. I've been uh, on one hunt in my life where a, uh, common golden eye was shot. Yeah. And we were all like, what in the hell is that? Yeah. It was a hen and we were like, what? Yeah. Nobody had ever seen one. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah they're pretty, I mean, yeah. And, and they're, because of that, they're, sort of restricted distribution a lot of hunters don't aren't able to recognize them especially when you start talking about the hens mm-hmm. uh and and they're also pretty unique in that uh there are some species more so than others that it'll take about it'll take two and a half years or about two years before they reach sexual maturity and they you know as a result they kind of have some that that um that second year plumage is going to be a little bit different from that third year oh. plumage. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of variation in their, in their appearance across those first three years as well. It makes it adds a little bit of difficulty to, to identification. So what is being done within the waterfowling conservation community to keep tabs on their population levels because we have bag limits. I, it might be three scoters. I don't know. I'll find out when I get up there. And, and the reason why I don't know is because it's not relative to me or my right. hunting or anything else. Never done it. So I yeah. don't know what the bag limit is. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's only one long tail duck. No idea. But what, but there are limits. So obviously people say, biologists say, okay, you know, this is how many we can shoot. Here's why. Where, where does that information and who's keeping tabs on that? Well, I'm going to steer clear of trying to explain how harvest regulations are set for sea ducks because I've not been involved in those conversations. Uh-huh. Ducks Unlimited doesn't get involved in it. What I can tell you is that state and federal agencies do participate in and conduct a number of surveys. Some are, are similar to our traditional aerial surveys um, on breeding areas uh, and on breeding grounds. Some of them occur on the wintering grounds because it's easy, going to be easier to survey their populations during that time of the year when they're more concentrated. So there are a variety of surveys conducted across North America uh, in strategic locations to try to get a handle on sea duck populations. Uh, some uh subsets subpopulations of sea ducks remain difficult to study to survey and 
Yeah, I'm not I'm not the person to talk to about, about harvest regulation. I try to be very careful about, you know, not stepping into something that, that I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, all right. Uh, but the, yeah, you, you got to check with your local regulations and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm trying to think if in how much it talks about sea duck harvest regulations, even in the adaptive harvest management report that comes out. I don't think it references much of that at all. That's mm-hmm. um, They're like this, the, this uh, mystical thing that exists on the coast that, us inlanders don't know diddly squat about well that's right yeah and, and the flyway the, the flyway councils flyway tech sections work closely with u.s fish and wildlife service and then canadian wildlife service on their side of the border they do collect data and use the available data to inform their harvest regulations uh just the same as we do for all all other uh species so mm-hmm. uh, there's have you been sea duck hunting Yes, I have actually. Uh, it was in Alaska this past year, and I guess I could technically this was a sea duck hunt. I went up there, and it was we were there primarily. We were out at Coal Bay, Alaska. We were there primarily to hunt brant. Uh-huh. We ended up uh, hunting brant and doing well. Then we also went out one morning to target harlequin ducks. Now that's a duck that is pretty difficult to make taste good. It's my understanding, <laughs> but they are an absolutely gorgeous bird if you get a nice drake. And that was one of the things I was after is I wanted a drake so I could uh, get it mounted and went out in a layout boat and uh, ended up um, knocking down two um, two drakes. And I got a third one. It was uh, the four day four day ba- uh, four bird bag limit on those. And I got a third one down, and so then I motioned to the tender boat and said, you know, come pick me up. I'll, I'll trade out and let somebody else get in here. And before he could get out there, another drake comes flying by in a flock. And so I was like, well, okay, I'll drop this one too. Mm-hmm. So I ended up with with four beautiful drake harlequin ducks. That was quite a highlight, you know. So, nice. um, But other than that, I've never been eider hunting. I've never – I mean, I've shot a scoter. I've shot a, a red-breasted merganser. I've shot a – long-tailed duck, uh, obviously bufflehead, uh, hoodamerganser. You know, so I've, I've, I've killed sea ducks before and hunted sea ducks, but not on the type of sea duck hunt that you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, where you're going to be going like the, the, um, the North Atlantic or Atlantic Canada. Going mostly like for scoters yeah. and uh, long-tailed old squalls historically as they once yeah. were called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, a Drake old squaw is what I really, that would be the, and, the one yeah. that I'm after from a collecting yeah. standpoint. Yeah. 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 That's an interesting bird that, you know, it, it's plumage during winter. Whenever we see them, it's gorgeous. Right. But then it's a bird that once it gets to the breeding ground in the spring, it turns, it turns black you know, or it turns black. It molts into, into its breeding plumage. And, uh, it, it, it looks entirely different, which is mm. in contrast to most of the other ducks that we have where the way a mallard appears in January, February is the way a mallard appears all the way through May. And that's not the case for the long-tailed ducks. I don't know enough. I'm going to confess. I don't know enough about the molt ecology or the, the molt. Um, yeah, the, the molt process for that bird. Again, revealing that I'm, I'm not an expert on sea ducks. There, there are a lot of people out there that are, and some folks on DU staff have done a lot of work with sea ducks. Um, but uh, it's, I mean, there's they're hard to study, and yeah. and as you were kind of alluding to earlier, there's not a lot of conservation work that we can do 
for sea ducks, at least direct program wise. Now, there are probably some policy efforts when you start to understand trends in some of their important food resources. Uh, obviously, there's you know, harvest regulations and concern for over harvest of that that group of birds is particularly um, is particularly high on the list of things to be on the lookout for because they're long-lived species. They're not like a blue-winged teal, where they uh, it's this this continuum of R selected to K selected. I don't want to get too much into the, the ecology of this, but there are some species that have high reproductive rates, high mortality rates. They reach age of, of, of maturity or sexual maturity in their first year of in their first summer then there are species like sea ducks which a lot of times will take a couple of years to reach sexual maturity ecologically historically they have longer lifespans and they have lower reproductive output for so for species like that there's inherently i don't know if you hear that ding and i apologize if you mm-hmm. do i've got some messages coming up um there there are species that for which harvest, if it's not heavily, not tightly regulated uh, in the context of the available information, yeah, there's there's greater risk for over-harvest for, that, uh, for those species. So, um, so that's an issue there. But that's, again, that's all in our flyway system and our, our federal state partners. So you mentioned a duck earlier that I don't think many waterfowlers pay any attention to, and that's the ruddy duck. And I've shot a couple of those in my waterfowling career, and they're just like a little tiny round butterball. Mm-hmm. But they're never plumed out. I don't, and I think that it, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't the ruddy duck like actually go into breeding plumage later than most of the it other does. species? It does. So you're never going to legally shoot one that's going to be fully plumed out. So if you have one on your wall that's plumed out, you're a poacher. <laughs> <laughs> it would at minimum cause me to ask some questions. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, oh, what's the story behind that? But it really does turn into a beautiful drake. Uh, it's oh, like this man. orangish reddish color with a, a blue bill. It's like nothing else out there. The only thing better than their appearance when they're in that breeding plumage is their behavior, their breeding behavior. I don't know if you've ever been to the prairie pothole region and seen them, but they're also one that's closely, they're overwater nesters. They, um, they're, they're nesting these permanent, semi-permanent wetlands. They have an elaborate courtship display. The male's bill turns this bright baby blue Yes. It um, it does this does this bubbling display where they kind of puff up their they tr- they have air sort of naturally in their feathers and then the male will and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to um, imitate the ready duck so, <laughs> so don't even ask me but they'll pump their head up and down and then they'll they're basically beating the bill on their chest and forcing those that those air bubbles out of their chest and onto the water and then they do a little a little grunt and they stick their head out and then they stick their butt out, you know, and so it's uh, they're, they're, their tail feathers are erect and their head is erect and they do this bubbling display and trying to court those females. The other interesting thing about, about ruddy ducks is they're one of the only duck species in North America, if I'm getting this right, that is known to practice what's called polygyny. Uh, it's where one male can be paired with more than one female. Uh, you know, and will defend them. Now, mallards and other ducks will mate, male mallards will mate with more than one female, forced copulations, rape flights, and extra pair copulations, all that kind of stuff. But ruddy ducks 
are, I think, the only duck species in North America that has uh, where a male can be paired with and and defend more than one female. Hmm. Uh, so that's pretty cool too in in what that little bird is able to do. Yeah. There's, well, I, yeah. I've never seen one in full plumage. Love to do check that off the bucket yeah. list someday. Yeah. Uh, quick, but you uh, mentioned uh, you want another fact? copulation. To, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have a I have a bird that I, I still have to get it to Josh and Becky, my tax numbers, but I have a a brewer's duck in the freezer right now. But I shot last season. That is a a, a product of rape. <laughs> so yeah. Like it, yeah. The waterfowl yeah. world is a it's a a rapey place when you get down yeah, to it it could you know two other little quick facts about ruddy ducks i'm sure some of your educated listeners might be wondering if i was going to say this uh ruddy ducks lay the largest egg relative to their body size it's just incredible it's a uh, it's mm. larger than a mallard egg it's larger than um oh, wow. i think i think the only i think only some of the sea ducks are going to have an egg larger than than a ruddy duck uh the other thing about ruddy ducks and this is well known uh they have they're the duck with the the largest penis um you know mm. ducks have a penis male ducks have a penis and there's been a lot of sort of evolutionary study of how it's a corkscrew penis and how it evolved uh, i mean that is a fascinating topic in its <laughs> in itself but yeah ruddy ducks um ruddy ducks are the the duck species with the um and stiff tails other stiff tails as well with the longest penis so it's a, another little fun fact for your audience interesting so yeah. yeah don't make fun of those little guys no man they are cool uh-huh Right on. Now they may not taste very well, you know, because yeah. they're they're an aquatic invertebrate eating fiend. Uh, Chironomids, uh, those little aquatic worms, is what they love to feed on, and it ends up, you know, it's they don't, they don't it's taste all that great. So but long. I think they, but I think they were. They might have. I'm not up to speed on some of this. Something makes me say that they were highly prized back in market hunting days i may be getting them confused with another species well, i know canvas backs if you looked at the waldor waldorf astoria menu from like the 19 the teens yeah uh the the canvas back filet and then a redhead filet were more expensive than filet mignon yep. on the menu which is crazy you're talking about yeah. one of the fanciest swankiest restaurants in new york city at the time but, yeah, and, water, uh, and waterfowl hunters are the only ones left to be able to do that. So mm -hmm. that's yeah. a, it's a badge of honor, man. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's do this, Mike. Let's knock out our last break here. We'll come back, mix in some waterfowl recipe discussion, which will segue us into this uh, research project that you, the listener, could participate in uh, this duck season. That segment brought to you by the Armasite Contractor Series, the 320 and the 640. Here's the cool thing. Right now, through December, so dudes, listen, if you want to buy yourself a thermal optic for Christmas, uh, you know, from Santa, quotation marks, uh, there is a 10% rebate off of the 320 and the 640 contractor now through the end of December. Check it out. Uh, these are the best thermal optics that I've had the pleasure of using, and I've used a lot of them. Uh, but the interface is so user-friendly. Bluetooth the video right to your phone. Don't even have to plug it into your, your computer. Diverse color palette, internal recording, all that cool stuff. It's the Contractor Series. 10% off right now through December uh, at Armasite.com. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. They are left alone and they won't be 
the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. There's a blast from the past, and thanks to my Texas Rangers for making Creed great again. 1997's My Own Prison. And uh, yes, congrats to our little Rangers who have made it to the Fall Classic. Sitting right here in the office, I'm looking at... Uh, someone said on Instagram the other day, Oh, don't worry, these band... Talking about me and Henry, like these bandwagon fans, this will all be over soon. I think it was a disgruntled Astros fan, to be frank, but... Uh, Sitting right here, now in my hand, uh, well, right next to the signed Michael Young pennant. But uh, yes, this framed, this is one of my favorite possessions. And uh, it says, this certificate of recognition is given to those of you who were in attendance August 22nd, 1989. Oakland Athletics versus Texas Rangers. Your enthusiasm and support have played a major role in helping to achieve this milestone. Signed, Nolan Ryan. Arlington Stadium, have the ticket stub framed with it and Nolan Ryan's signature. Uh, it's so cool my dad got this for me. And my dad is the one that took me to that game for my eighth birthday party with my brother. And uh, I guess my youngest brother wasn't even born because I was eight. And then my cousin and a couple of my closest buddies. Yeah, that, that was a birthday to remember. We sat in the last row of the bleachers in Arlington Stadium. And I remember vividly Nolan Ryan striking out Hall of Famer, Ricky Henderson, for that 5,000th strikeout. And in some weird way, that love for the Texas Rangers and the you know the Cowboys and the Mavericks and Baylor sports, all of that, but, but really it goes back to the Rangers. It led me to pursue a career in radio because I wanted to do sports talk radio. So anyway, thanks to the Rangers and Nolan Ryan. Uh, back then, you could just mail the ticket stub directly to the player's address, and they would sign it and send it back to you. It was so cool. Uh, and that wasn't unique to Nolan, although... And, and he's been on this show. Nolan Ryan's been on this show uh, back when he was the president of the Texas Rangers. That was one of those interviews where I was completely starstruck. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. One of my real-life heroes, uh, along with my old man, and got to throw Dirk in there as well. Uh, anyway... The Texas Rangers are in the World Series, and somehow they chose Creed to be the clubhouse music that has led them on this uh, historic, or set the tone for this historic playoff run. Uh, and I'm not going to lie, I loved Creed back in 97. Their first record was a banger. Uh, so there's a blast from the past for you. Go Rangers. Let's beat those Diamondbacks and get that first World Series title. I'm predicting Rangers in six. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, let's wrap this thing up by continuing our conversation with Ducks Unlimited's senior waterfowl scientist, Mike Brazier. So um, I, haven't, I haven't shot a ruddy duck in it's got to be 12 years or so. And back then, I didn't know how to cook duck anyway. Mm. So I, I don't 
I wouldn't, it probably just got thrown in the pot with the rest of them. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't know if I ever shoot another one, I will fillet it and like really get the flavor profile of what a ruddy duck yeah. tastes like. Yeah. Cause I like that. I like to compare and contrast what, you know, what species. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent cable. Whenever people ask me what my favorite duck recipe is, I say it's a simple one and I like it simple because it's quick and also because I get to, it retains the individual flavor profile of these ducks. The differences between species, but also differences between individuals within, within a, a species. And so it's just olive oil, it's rosemary, salt and pepper, and that's it, man. I put it in, mm. most often I'll put it on a cast iron skillet and uh, with skin on and it's, you know, skin on with some of those uh, divers or sea ducks, you kind of rolling the dice, you know, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah. it is what it is, right? If we're talking uh -huh. about wanting to taste the individual flavor profile on these ducks, then, then you got to have that. And I, it's just another one of the fascinating things about this group of birds is that they're, they're all different. They're different in so many different ways and uh, the, what their populations need, what they need for breeding, um, how they taste, what they eat, etc. It's It's pretty cool. Have you ever tried eating their tongues? I have not. Um, I have not, but uh, I know they're there are good. some, I know there's some recipes out there. Uh -huh. And it's a very, uh, like culturally, it's a, it's a very Asian preparation i think yeah. they're the ones that are more prone to like most americans be like no i'm not eating a duck tongue yeah but uh we there we did like a five-man uh weekend trip out to my buddy's place in seymour we shot gadwall widgeon mallards mm. uh some spoonies primarily i think those were and some teal and uh you just remove the tongues they just pull right out yeah and they have a little uh, like a hard bone in the middle of it uh and you cook that with with the you cook them with the bone in it and we just use like uh garlic butter salt and pepper and just sauteed them yeah and then you just bite down on that little bone and then the the actual flesh just comes right off in your mouth and it's like the texture of a, a baked oyster i would say really but the flavor is very mild it was huh. very good we'd like dipped them in um uh, uh some um some kind of you know um I'm trying to think of the, of sriracha. Yeah. yeah. We give it a little spice, but yeah. very good. Yeah. Man, um, I've not tried that. I've tried duck heart. I've tried goose heart. No, delicious. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll have to try. I have to try that. Now, one other thing, if you, if you'd let me talk about it, that, that actually relates to the whole duck tongue uh, idea. Um, a new project that we have going, we're starting it with the university of Texas, El Paso. You talk, have you had Dr. Phil Levretsky on your on your mm -hmm. podcast no. he's a gen waterfowl geneticist out there we have a project going with him right now called duck dna it just launched www.duckdna.com people can go mm. check it out it's a research project where we are enlisting the help of waterfowl hunters to collect and submit tissue samples from harvested ducks for the purpose of a waterfowl genetics research project, some ongoing work that Phil oh, has. Wow. Some of it relates to the game farm mallard issue. Uh, Mexican ducks, you'll be familiar with Mexican ducks and the concern over hybridization with mallards. And Phil is and his students were the ones that kind of figured out, yeah, there's some hybridization, but there is a pretty sizable population of pure Mexican ducks. And a lot of the ducks that people have been identifying as mallard Mexican duck hybrids were actually 
one year old or young of the year Mexican ducks. I mean, that's if you haven't had Phil on your your podcast, you you wait, should wait, define a Mexican duck. Well, it is a mallard light duck, but it's it's related to the mallard. It's related to the black duck. It's related to model ducks, but it is genetically a unique species, taxonomically a unique species. The American Ornithological Society recently, in response to some of Phil's research, did change their designation of it from being a subspecies of the mallard to being its own species. And so what we are doing through Duck DNA is allowing people to sign up to participate in this. They can go to duckdna.com. They can apply. Uh, we're drawing names. We're going to draw about for about three, 300 participants, 300 hunters uh, to participate, asking each one to collect tissue samples from five harvested ducks, focusing on the mallard-like ducks, uh, mallard, Mexican duck, black duck, model duck, and any hybrid. It's the other kind of angle here, mm-hmm. uh, any kind of hybrid or other interesting duck. And the reason it relates to your discussion of a duck tongue is that's the tissue sample that we're asking people to cut out to cut and and put in these vials and then mail back in just a quarter inch piece of the tongue of the ducks that you're submitting for for sampling for analysis that gives phil this, these tissue samples from all across nor uh, all across the u.s we're going to try to get samples from 1500 ducks and then he's going to do the genetic analysis on it and then we're going to return to the participating hunters certificates of genetic analysis. Some of them will be certificates of of purity, telling them how pure of a mallard it is. Is it 99% pure wild mallard genes or does it have 60% game farm mallard genes in it? Uh, All that kind of stuff. So Hmm. folks can learn more about it at that website. But I wanted to I want to at least kind of give you an opportunity to uh, inform folks of it there here on your show. That's cool. And to be involved with the research, you know, just signing up. It's free. That's right. You're a part of that. That's a pretty cool thing to do. That's right. It's yeah. free because of support from our sponsors, um, generous sponsors. And I don't, yeah, hunters have been participating in data collection, waterfowl management as, as long as we've been doing all this stuff. So mm-hmm. band recoveries, harvest surveys, this is just another way. I don't believe in bands. I mean, they exist. You can no, deny them, not, but they exist. Not for me. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> I've that, seen thousands of ducks killed. <laughs> thousands. And I have and never you, seen a. You got to be kidding. Been on a hunt where a band was, a banded duck was shot. You have no. got to be kidding me. No, no. That's why I you don't know. Think, isn't I that think am- people just buy them online and just slip them on the thing. And isn't that amazing? I know yeah. some people, uh, some DU staff, that have, that have like you killed thousands of ducks in their life, and maybe have killed only one or two birds with a band. Uh, I'm, well, at least I've, they believe. It's like Santa they Claus. They believe. You know? Like, you know, and so then there are folks like me. Now, I've not killed a lot of banded birds in my life, but I am one of the few that have killed, that's killed two banded birds on the same hunt. Four, four Drake Mallards, two of which had a band. Same location. They were banded in totally different geographies. Oh, um, wow. And I mean, obviously, there are a lot of people that have done that, and that have, there are some people that have that have um, harvested more than two banded birds in a single hunt. But it's just there's still some interesting um, aspects of that. The fact that I mean, and it's got to be related to where we're banding these birds, and like the source of the birds that you've been you've been hunting and harvesting, probably coming from an area that's not heavily banded. You know? Yeah, I just don't believe in it. Okay. 
I mean, I was on I was on Lake Ray Roberts on Thanksgiving Day when oh, this was a decade ago, and uh, it was me and a couple buddies. And my my other buddy was hunting a, a different area that I we both hunted, and I think we had a good hunt. We maybe shot twelve ducks or so between the three of us. And he texts me. He's like, I shot one mallard. It was banded. I'm like, son of a gun. He's like, right around the cove from us, you know? Yeah, right. But uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Okay. So. Yeah, that's a great thing. That's a great thing, man. You're free to believe what you want to. It's America. Uh, that's right. That's right. And I've also learned learned a long time ago that I can't change everybody's mind. I don't want to change everybody's mind, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I hope this is the year for you. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. You got, you got to let me know if it is. I will. Oh, you'll be the first one. Like, okay. Mike. <laughs> They exist. Yes. Santa's real. All right. Well, hey, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for the time today, Mike. Always, Always great happy talking to do it. Ducks with you, and I uh, yeah. hope you have a great season, and we appreciate everything Ducks Unlimited does. Appreciate it, Cable. Good luck on that uh, on that sea duck hunt. I'd love to hear how it goes, and I hope it's, I hope it's a memorable one. Yeah, I'm stoked about it, uh, and I'll be in good company with the guys over at Kent Cartridge. Um, thanks again for your time today, Mike, and all that Ducks Unlimited continues to do as the leader in wetlands conservation. Thanks, thanks, Cable. You too. Thanks for all you do. So there you have it. DU's senior uh, waterfowl scientist, Mike Brazier. Always a pleasure talking ducks with Mike. That segment was brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and my friends over at NUMA. It is the outdoor apparel that I put my name behind. NUMA is a Texas-based company that, like myself, believes that the Second Amendment is absolute. So if uh, if that's a mantra that you agree with, why don't you stop looking out west at those companies that you know you might not philosophically agree with some of their takes? I know I don't. There's no doubt about that. Plus, NUMA has the best warranty in the business. Uh, literally, there is a lifetime guarantee on all of their hunting apparel, including the Pathfinder pant and the Palisade puffy jacket, two of my favorites. You can find their entire lineup of hunting apparel and accessories right there at numaoutdoors.com. Use that promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out, and you'll save 20% off your entire order. Unfortunately, we got to go. Got to get out of here flat out of time. Thanks to Mike. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying go Rangers and y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Yeah, I like